you'll see in your bulletin this morning, there's an insert, Bless Every Home. That's what that video is about. You can uh, go to that link there at the bottom, or you can scan that little code with your phone. It'll take you to the app. It's a free service that we're making available to our church as a way to help ourselves to see us as missionaries where we are. We believe that this church has been placed here for such a time as this for a purpose. And to that extent, every one of you are in the neighborhood that you live in for a purpose for such a time as this. Uh, You are missionaries to your neighbors. And so this little tool will help us engage in that way. And it starts with prayer. It's it's as simple as starting with prayer. You'll see uh, on the board out there, uh, that's our strategy for reaching our community. Prayer, care, share. It starts with praying. That's something that the Lord burdened my heart with several years ago when I realized, hey, I don't even know many of my neighbors' names. And so we began to pray, Lord, Give us an opportunity to know our neighbors so that we might share the gospel with them. We prayed for opportunities to share the gospel, and God has answered that prayer. And so I'm convinced that reaching our community is going to start with prayer. And so what a great tool that we have through this new app uh, to be intentional about praying on a regular basis for our neighbors. So take advantage of that. All right, to the sermon On January 10th, happens to be my birthday, 49 BC, I'm not that old though, Julius Caesar and his army crossed the Rubicon River. This was a boundary beyond which no army was allowed to come near Rome. And crossing the Rubicon was, it just, it made war inevitable. It was a point of no return. And today, this is what this idiom means when we say we've crossed the Rubicon. We were saying we've crossed the point of no return. In John chapter 5, Jesus is going to cross the Rubicon in his ministry. This would become a point of no return for Jesus that would make conflict with the religious leaders inevitable and would set in motion his journey to the cross. It was the point of no return. To this point in John's gospel, Jesus is certainly a person of interest among the religious leaders. He's doing signs, he's doing wonders, he's drawing larger crowds than John the Baptist now. He's on their radar. He's on their radar. But after the events of John 5, Jesus will go from being a person of interest to being public enemy number one. This is the Rubicon for Jesus' ministry. Today in John 5, 1 to 18, we're going to see that it was Jesus' work that was the centerpiece of conflict with the religious leaders. And we're going to unpack this with three points. We're going to examine Jesus' work. We're going to look at some possible responses to Jesus' work. And then we're going to talk about the hazards involved in his work. Let's look at the text now together. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, please use one of our pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is now yours as our gift to you. We're on page 1057 if you need help finding it. And once you're there, please stand with me if you're able out of reverence for God's word. And follow along with me as I read. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a large crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. For your word, it is rich and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Father, open our hearts today to hear your word, that it may take root in our hearts and bear fruit for your kingdom. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The work, the response... The hazard. Here we go. Jesus was in Jerusalem at the pools of Bethesda. I was actually in Israel in 2017. I saw the site where these pools were. It was pretty pretty interesting. There was a legend that an angel of the Lord would stir up the waters of this pool and the first person to enter the waters after the waters were stirred would be healed of whatever physical ailment they had. How do we know this? Because it's not in our text. But if you're astute, you might be looking at your Bibles and wondering, and you may have noticed that the verse numbers go from three to five. And verse four, there is no verse four. So what's going on there? Uh, who messed with our Bibles, right? We want to know what's going on. Well, I'll spare you a lengthy history lesson, but I do want to let you know what's going on here. Uh, the Greek, in the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts, uh, they weren't written with chapters and verses. 
Uh, Those were added much later in order to help readers of the Bible to be able to locate sections and verses more easily and more quickly. One of the first ones to do this was a man named Stephen Langton, an archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1227 A.D., And the reason verse 4 is no longer included in modern translations is because at the time when the verses and chapters were being added, there were were a certain number of manuscripts that were available to the translators. But as time went on and more and more archaeological discoveries turned up more and more manuscripts and we had more manuscripts to compare with one another, it became clear that uh, the, uh, the, this verse 4 was, was believed by Bible scholars to not have been in the original writings, all right? because there were older manuscripts that were discovered that did not include verse 4. Right? And what likely happened is that uh, some copyist over, over the years included a note in the margin about this, this legend that was believed in Jesus' day, and someone who was making copies, uh, pulled that in at one point, and then it got included as verse 4. So what's happening here is, you know, there's no, um, there's no sinister plot to dilute the Word of God. It was just determined that verse 4 wasn't really original to the earliest manuscripts. So now uh, we have verse 3, and then we jump to verse 5. Uh, it was decided that the numbers wouldn't just shift over and then five would become the new four and so on because that would goof everyone up, right? Uh, So that's why there's no four there. Okay, history lesson over. Back to the text. I share that with you because uh, that explains this man's belief that the waters were stirred up and and that people believe that the first one into the water after they were stirred up uh, would be healed. So Jesus is surrounded by a multitude of invalids hoping to be the first one into the pool. That's how my kids are in the summer. They want to be the first one in the pool. Uh, So you can imagine the commotion, uh, the, the scene there with all these invalids just waiting to get into that pool and to be the first one. Now Jesus singles out just one man. He singles out one man to heal him, telling him to Get up, take your bed and walk. The problem was that Jesus performed this miracle on a Sabbath day when all work was prohibited by the religious leaders. We should ask ourselves, did Jesus break God's laws by healing on the Sabbath? Even telling someone else to to carry something on the Sabbath? Did he break a law here that is part of God's law? Because if he did, this is important, if he did, if Jesus broke a law here, then he wasn't perfect. And if he wasn't perfect, it wouldn't be possible for him to be the savior of the world. So we need to understand what's going on here. Jesus could have defended his actions saying something like, well, the law doesn't prohibit doing good on the Sabbath. That would have been a sound argument. Or that this man wasn't really working, he was proclaiming, he was worshiping, he was proclaiming what God did for him and healing him. He's 
testifying to the goodness of God, so he's not really working. That could have been a a good argument, right? But Jesus goes somewhere entirely unexpected. He says this in John 5, 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This simple response by Jesus to the religious leaders is loaded. And let me break this down for you. First, first, Jesus calls God his Father. The only time that Jews would call God their Father was in a corporate setting. In reference to the fact that God is the Father of the nation of Israel. But here, Jesus is claiming a personal relationship. God is my Father. My Father. This is unprecedented. So this got their attention. Secondly, Jesus is saying that God the Father is working. He's working on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus mean by this? Let me explain. There had been some debates over the years in different rabbinic schools of thought about the nature of how God rested on the Sabbath. Many reasoned that if... God stopped all work on the Sabbath, including his work of holding and sustaining all things in the universe together, then the universe would cease to exist. So God is, he's doing some work on the Sabbath. All right? So they they reasoned in that way. He's at least doing some work on the Sabbath. Others reasoned that God is not working because he never left his home. Because the entire universe is his home. He's not going outside of his home to carry a a load or a burden. The heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain him. So many concluded that God only rested from his initial work of creation. And that his rest was symbolic to make the Sabbath day special for us. So the religious leaders would not have had a problem with Jesus' claim that God is always working. These were, these were common thoughts in their day. The problem was what Jesus said next, and I am working. He's making a connection with the kind of work the Father does on the Sabbath with the kind of work that he is also doing on the Sabbath. Jesus is essentially saying that in the same way that God works on the Sabbath, I am working like that too. And John explains this later on in the passage, but Jesus is arguing that his work on the Sabbath is evidence that he and the Father are equal, that he's equal with God. Because all the same factors that apply to God that justify his work must therefore also apply to Jesus and the work that he does on the Sabbath. So what is the work of Jesus In this immediate context, it is his work of healing. But it is also his command for this man to take up his bed and walk. But in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles are signs. They're signs that point others to Jesus. For example, this sign... uh, should cause us to think of these words in Isaiah 35. 
Verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is, a, this is a description of the redemptive work of God that he's doing in the world. And all of Jesus' work is part of God's plan to redeem mankind from their sin. Jesus' work then includes his, his perfect sinless life that qualified him to substitute himself for us. Paying for our sins with his sinless blood shed on the cross. That is part of his work. Jesus' work includes his victorious resurrection that sealed our hope for a new life to come. And this is a work that demands a response. So there's his work. Let's look at some responses. Because we must respond to his work. First notice that the response of the religious leaders... Their response is legalism. In many ways, this was a reaction to God's judgment on Israel, the religious leaders being so legalistic. Remember that the Jewish people, uh, they, they abandoned their God. They, they uh, adopted foreign gods. And what happened? God gave them into the hands of the Babylonians and they were carried away into exile. Now, to avoid going down that road again, that horrid road, they added more and more laws on top of God's laws, kind of like a fence to keep people away from getting too close to actually breaking one of the laws that God made, right? So they're going to put up new laws to keep people from getting too close to breaking God's laws. But these laws were used by the religious elite to set up a system that elevated themselves in the eyes of the people. It gave them power over the people. It fed their egos and was used to oppress. This is more than seeking to be disciplined spiritually. We should pursue discipline in our spiritual lives. But you know what the difference is between discipline and, and legalism? To be disciplined is to train hard. To get good at a sport like basketball. You want to get better? You gotta be disciplined. You gotta watch your diet, you gotta train, you gotta shoot some more hoops, get some more reps in. But to be legalistic would be like creating a set of special rules that only allowed certain people to play basketball. That's legalism. Legalism hijacks good biblical values and warps them to man-centered tokens of pride. Discipline is good, but anytime our discipline becomes a means to puff ourselves up in, in the eyes of others and to tear them down, it becomes legalism. And here, rules that were meant to guard against working on the Sabbath had become Oppressive burdens that outlawed even healing a man on the Sabbath. The other response is ingratitude. We see this in our text as well. Notice the brush strokes that John paints this man with. They're, they're not flattering. Look at this one fact. This man is, has been an invalid for 38 years and for all that time, no one has helped him into the pool. This man is alone. 
He's friendless. No one wants to help him. I wonder why this is. I imagine that whatever it is about this man's character, he has, he has managed to push away a lot of people and to burn a lot of bridges, to be an invalid for 38 years and no one's there to help him into that pool. Now Jesus gives this man an incredible gift of grace by healing his body. But when he's questioned by the religious authorities, he's not seeking to give glory to Jesus out of gratitude, to give credit where credit's due. There's no indication of this in the text. He's trying to save his own skin. He's, he's passing the buck. He's shifting the blame. He's trying to get the, the spotlight off of himself. And as soon as he, he learns Jesus' identity, what does he do? The first thing he does is he goes and he tattles to the re- religious leaders. I know who it is now. He, I saw him again. This is the man you want. Go after this guy. He's the one who told me to take up my bed and walk. It's pretty clear this man lacks gratitude for what Jesus has done for him. The man is happy to receive the benefits of Jesus, but as soon as Jesus becomes inconvenient, it becomes clear that he was only using Jesus. When the pressure gets turned up on you for following Jesus, how quick are you to throw Jesus under the bus? Following Jesus won't guarantee your popularity in this world. But gratitude for what he's done will carry you through those times when the world rejects you because of Jesus. Gratitude will cause us to say, take the world, but give me Jesus. Ingratitude will say, take Jesus and give me the world. That's what ingratitude does to our hearts. How should we respond? Let's look at Jesus' words to the man in verse 14. After Jesus found him in the temple, he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is telling this man exactly how he should respond to his gift of grace. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Be grateful and stop sinning. Jesus' goal here then in healing this man's body was so that he could find healing for his soul. The healing of his body should have directed him to Jesus, to see his need for Jesus to heal his soul. Look at how the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You may not experience a miracle in your lifetime like this man, but there is at least one miracle given to all mankind. It's the kindness of God. We deserve his wrath. It's something that theologians call common grace, The fact that you're able to enjoy a nice day at the beach. You could be a a terrible sinner and, and still enjoy that. Hiking a beautiful mountain trail. Or simple pleasures like a good cup of coffee. Or a slice of pizza from your favorite pizza shop. Or a scoop of ice cream from your 
favorite ice cream shop. Waking up each day with breath in your lungs is a good gift from God that no one deserves. We experience all kinds of of favor and kindness from God, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a good person or not. There's all things, all these things that we enjoy that are examples of God's kindness and grace to us. We didn't earn any of these things and we don't deserve them either. The wrath of God we do deserve is withheld as an act of, of patience and mercy by God. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. May you see the kind and patient hand of God, even in the small things. And may they lead you to turn away from sin and live a grateful life for Jesus. So this is how we all must respond to the work of Jesus, by turning from our sin, turning to him, finding healing for our souls. Now let's talk about the hazard in high school, I worked a retail job. Most retail stores are like this, but in, in our employee break room, there was a sign that read X number of days without an incident. Anyone ever see that at your workplace? You know, there's like a little whiteboard and they add a new number each day that goes by. Uh, employers work hard to provide a safe working environment for their employees, but Some occupations are just naturally more dangerous than others because they're more risky. And this is why those jobs pay more than things like bagging groceries where maybe your highest risk is getting a paper cut or something. I don't know. The good work that Jesus did crossed the Rubicon, the point of no return. Jesus made it clear that he wasn't playing the man-centered game of legalism that the religious leaders were playing. And because of this, people were drawn to him, they're getting healed by him, and Jesus was a threat to their nice system of control over the people. Jesus is a threat to the religious leaders now. The influence of the religious leaders, it was slipping away because of Jesus. Verse 16 tells us that they persecuted Jesus because of this work. They found a gotcha. You know, oh, he did this on the Sabbath. We're going to get him. We're going to use this to get him. But things escalate drastically just two verses later. And they're now seeking an opportunity to kill him. This threat to their power must be neutralized. But Jesus stared this occupational hazard right in the face. And he continued his work. His mission all the way to the cross to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. There's another hazard here. But it's not for Jesus. It's for all of us. The man in our passage tasted the goodness of God when he was healed physically. Jesus said to him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The only thing worse than the hell of spending 38 years as an invalid with no friends is spending eternity in literal hell. 
bearing the wrath of God for your sins. If you've already made a decision to follow Jesus and to receive eternal life, these truths, these are truths that you must fight to remember because they will make you increasingly more grateful and motivate you to continue saying no to sin. But if you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, the choice is yours. What will you do with Jesus' work? How will you respond? Will you marginalize him and ignore him because he's a threat to your comfort? Or will you turn from your sin and receive Jesus because you know you need a Savior? And only he can be that Savior for you. If that's you, you must turn to Jesus today because today is all you're guaranteed. Today is the day of salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yet whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Come to Jesus today. I'll be available after the service. I'll be out by the front doors. If you want to write something on the visitor card there in your pew, uh, I'll get in touch with you if you'd like to do it that way. But uh, don't delay. Today is all you're guaranteed. Today is the day of salvation. All those who call upon the Lord will be saved. Today could be the day for you. So don't delay. Come talk to me. Come talk to the person who who brought you or invited you. But do that soon because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not back down. You came with a mission and you knew the risks involved. You knew the hazards involved. You knew what would result from you doing the Father's work. We're thankful that you did, but you paid such a high price. Dying in our place is our substitute on the cross. Your broken body, your shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. We are so thankful for the riches of your grace. God, I pray that if there be any here today or watching online who've not yet made peace with you, Jesus, through your shed blood and your broken body on the cross and your victorious resurrection, that, that they would come to you today, that they would call on you in repentance and faith, trusting you, Jesus, to be the Savior they need and to give them eternal life. And Father, help us who've been walking with you for some time. Help us to be reminded of the the grace of God in our lives that we may be more grateful and that we may live lives uh, motivated toward holiness because of of the, the, the goodness of God in our lives. May we be a a curious and strange people among our, our neighbors. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. People who live differently because of the grace that we've been shown. We live lives of gratitude and holiness that others may see you and be pointed to you through our lives. God, we love you. We thank you for this text this morning. We pray that your spirit would work it into our hearts and change our lives and make us more like Jesus today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.